Imagine leaving home early on a wet December morning to finish some holiday shopping. It's just two days until Christmas and you have your checklist next to you with all the last minute gifts you still have to buy. But before you can make it to the store and return home, a violent lake effect blizzard sets in with hurricane force wind gusts and snow so heavy that you find yourself in a complete whiteout. Your trip to the store turns into a fight for survival as your car gets buried under massive snow drifts and you don't know when you'll be found. Hey GeoTrackers, this is Dr. Hal, host of the GeoTrack podcast. In this episode, we'll dig deep into the Christmas week blizzard of 2022 that pounded Western New York, inflicting 44 fatalities on a region usually accustomed to heavy snowfall. Our guest is Don Paul, a broadcast meteorologist since 1976, who has been forecasting lake effect snow in Buffalo since 1984. Don holds the American Meteorological Society, or AMS, seal of approval for television weathercasting and is a professional member of the AMS. He served a three-year term on the AMS Board of Broadcast Meteorology and has recently completed five years on the AMS Appeals Panel for AMS seal and CBM candidates. I came across Don on a PBS NewsHour feature on the Christmas week blizzard, and he was gracious to agree to do an interview for the GeoTrek podcast. Hey, if you're new to the podcast, GeoTrek investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. Before we jump into this conversation with Don, we have a quick favor to ask of you. We'd really appreciate if you take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark professional progress, which ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. Well, hey, let's jump into this episode 63 here with with Don Paul as we look back at the Christmas week blizzard of 2022 in Western New York and learn more about the science behind lake effect snow. By the way, if you're keeping score, this is the fifth podcast that we've done now that's based in New York State. Out of the previous four, three of them actually focus on severe winter weather. Those are podcast episodes 15, 17, and 27. Episode 52, look back at the 10-year anniversary of Superstorm Sandy that was also recorded in New York State on Long Island and aired uh, really later in 2022. So let's dump, jump into this episode here with Don Paul. It's going to be a great one if you're into winter weather or just really want to know about how people manage and survive through severe weather conditions. Don, really appreciate you taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. Happy to be here. I've got time. Don, you have spent a, a lot of time, a, a many years, many decades forecasting lake effect snow in western New York and the greater Buff- Buffalo metropolitan area. Could you walk us through a little bit of your, your career and your journey up there? Well, prior to my getting to Buffalo in 1984, I worked for five years in Detroit as a weekend meteorologist and a science editor during the week. And uh, when I got the job in Buffalo, I had a few months to spare, and I began going out to what was then the Weather Service Forecast Office for Michigan, which was in Ann Arbor. And they had journal articles, and I would read articles on lake effect snow, one of which was co-authored by a fellow named Tom Nizzle, who went on to be the meteorologist in charge of the Buffalo office years later. And I I read and I read and I read and I got here and the then meteorologist in charge, or as they call them, the MIC, invited me to come out and meet the people. And uh, 
I told him I had read such and such papers, and he said, well, you can read papers, and that is important, but you have to live it. And he gave me a decision tree paper, which had been written in the early 80s or late 70s for the smaller offices that no longer exist, that where they were staffed primarily by knowledgeable technicians rather than degreed meteorologists, the Rochester office, the Syracuse office, and it was an excellent decision tree uh, because it, it asked questions if such and such move, go, you, you know how decision trees work, go on sure. to the next. And uh, kind of like a flow chart. Yeah. And it, it had one sheet, which I still have next to me on my computer desk, although I have it memorized for the Lake Erie potential for lake effect snow, which towns and cities are going to be impacted by which wind direction. And for your listeners, uh, the wind directions in forecasting lake snow need to be really precise. Now we can tell people that if I'm giving a talk, it takes a southwest flow to get buffalo socked by lake effect snow, but southwest isn't really good enough because these bands can often be just five to 10 miles in width they can extend for many miles in length. It's really training, right? It's like a train. Yeah. And it's a convective train. It's if you were flying on final approach to come into Buffalo international uh, and you were coming up from Cleveland, you'd see a, a, a string of low topped convective cells. And if it's really well developed, you get thunder snow. Sure. And um, this, this paper saved me in the blizzard of 1985, my first big lake effect storm. I got here in August of 84, nothing was happening. And then a, uh, an event began shaping up, which even with the more primitive models, although we didn't think they were primitive back then, of the era of 1984, you, you knew something big was coming, began showing up on a Monday that by Saturday or Sunday, some part of Western New York was really gonna get hammered. Sure. A, a really powerful cold front and then southwest winds behind the front. And uh, I learned in this decision tree that a wind, if you picture the face of a compass, a wind coming from 255 degrees will miss a lot of, typically miss a lot of downtown Buffalo, but okay. hit south Buffalo and some eastern suburbs. It takes 250 degrees to get it into the heart of Buffalo, out to the airport. And if it's a strong enough band, it can sometimes reach all the way to near Rochester. And uh, 245 degrees tends to miss Buffalo and gets the densely populated suburbs just to the north of the city. So I realized, well, this is fantastic information because I would have had to take a compass and a protractor during the what turned out to be the blizzard of 85 to figure out which towns were getting lined up. Although that storm was so enormous, it was a hybrid between wide, widespread snow with an embedded intense lake effect band in the widespread, we call it synoptic snow. So it it hit quite a large area. And uh, the models at the time didn't do a great job with the precise direction. Um, And, our forecasts were really very good considering that there was imprecision in the wind directions. Uh, We, we were fortunate and there's also the experience involved of 
the people at the National Weather Service forecast office had been forecasting lake effect before the era of computer models and knew to look upwind at what surface winds were doing in western Michigan and Wisconsin, what the sure. upper level winds were showing in the, in the balloon, weather balloon soundings, and could still do a pretty good job. Um, so, Don, it sounds like you're saying just a five degree shift on that compass, you're getting a whole new area with this tremendous snowfall. Yes, and in western New York, the most densely populated part of our television area co- covers eight counties. But the most densely populated portion of Western New York is the northern half of Erie County, uh, from the city of the immediate suburbs just to the south of Buffalo, through Buffalo, and into the northern suburbs. That's where the population is densest, and uh, just five degrees difference, and you warn the wrong part of northern Erie County. So it's not good enough to just say, well, winds from the southwest, that'll do it. It's like what precise vector from the Southwest, right? And and we've had so much improvement in the last 20 years in these high-resolution models. Uh, One of the great models called BuffKit is now administered from uh, Norman, Oklahoma, but it was developed in Buffalo as a lake effect tool. And then even some of the great uh, tornado specialists like uh, Dr. Howie Bluestein at the University of Oklahoma said this tool will work for severe convection in the summer too. And sure. that, that was developed here. And then uh, Norman took it over. Uh, the National Weather Service has uh, tremendous centers on the campus of the University of Oklahoma. Well, and if our listeners haven't really seen huge lake snow, you know, like if you're even in, say, New Jersey, when there's a nor'easter, really the sky is just a slate gray with that east wind off the Atlantic Ocean. What you're talking about here really is convective cells. And like you said, you can get thunder snow, right? Yes. And we get it frequently. I grew up in the New York area. Once in a while as a kid, I'd hear thunder go boom. I lived right across the river from Manhattan in, in Jer- my part of Jersey was pronounced Jersey. And, <laughs> and uh, here we hear it. It still seems to shock people, but it happens very frequently here during intense lake effect. And as you know, generally if you're in thunder snow, that's about as hard as it can snow. Oh yeah. It's coming down really hard. Downburst like a thunderstorm, a, a cloudburst, I should say of snow. And if the winds are strong, uh, it's always a total whiteout. And it's sure. pretty terrifying to drive, try to drive in. And I, I think something else for our listeners to appreciate, I used to live over a little east of you over by the Binghamton area, but I was a winter sports athlete. So I drive up north of Syracuse into the Tug Hill Plateau looking for heavy snow to train. And I can remember times where it's sunny where I'm at and you can see these almost like convective cells just maybe three miles away. And all of a sudden, as you're driving into them, it goes from a sunny day to a complete whiteout in really just minutes. Yeah, we had a... Uh huge lake effect event in November of 2014, uh, mostly over the southern suburbs. The extreme south end of Buffalo got hammered. My television station, I'm semi-retired now, but our television station is in North Buffalo. North Buffalo got a total over two separate events in a week of four inches. South Buffalo got 48 inches. And then Tremendous. some of the southern suburbs got up to seven feet. 
Wow. And if you were to, uh, there were fantastic videos and yeah. still photos made of the wall of snow from a vantage point north of that Lake Effect band. And they, they were circulated internationally. It was spectacular. Uh, this enormous convective wall and the person taking the picture to the north would often have his immediate foreground bathed in sunshine. Sure. And you see this string of thunderstorms to the south, solid, just all connected together and streaming in from the lake. I've seen that actually as a time lapse, right? And you can see it just to his south. Sometimes he's in the sun, but it's just, it literally is a wall of snow. One of the most amazing things I've seen. It's, it's like a white curtain, basically. And you can see there's motion, I think, on the screen from right to left. Yeah, because uh, very, not always, but very often with Lake Effect, there are very strong winds around the north and south edge of that band, and the clouds really hustle along. Yeah, they're moving quickly, and it's really low level, right? This is all like low level of the atmosphere, right? Yeah, the key, the key layer to determine whether you're going to get strong lake effect as far as uh, temperatures go is the difference in temperature between the lake surface and the atmosphere about a mile up, okay. around 5,000 feet. And uh, then the other element is, are the winds well aligned through that entire layer and up to 10,000 feet? If you have a southwest wind, say, from 250 degrees at the surface, but just, let's say, 3,000 feet up, the winds are from uh, 210 degrees, that creates a wind shear that will disrupt the lake okay. effect band. You need well-aligned winds as well as that temperature drop-off rate, the lapse rate. So a, a, a steep lapse rate and then really aligned winds maybe in the lower and middle part of the atmosphere is really what you're looking for? Yes, and that's in that decision tree I mentioned uh, yeah. to you earlier. In, it said, are the winds well-aligned up to 10,000 feet? Is there more than 30 degrees change in wind direction within okay. that layer? And then if you said yes, that then it would say no for intense lake effect and you'd go to a different part of the decision tree well are we going to get any yeah a little sure, but sure. not much yeah i got you it, it sounds like when the winds align and you have that steep temperature lapse rate then you can really get pounded yeah and we had that in our blizzard uh at christmas time don what talk Talking about how localized these things are, before we started recording, this is an amazing story you were telling me about you would get phone calls at the station with people telling you to call their boss that where they are, it really was snowing like crazy. Could you explain that story? Yeah, um, I, I get occasional phone calls, and this is before the era where everyone had radar apps on their smartphones. Uh, someone would call me in Orchard Park, which is where the Bills play, and in the average winter, Orchard Park gets a lot more snow than Buffalo. And in fact, this year in November, Orchard Park had a lake effect event with an all-time, no one keeps official records for Orchard Park, but they got 81 inches wow. in this event. Well, I would occasionally get a call from someone in Orchard Park saying, could you here's my boss's phone number in downtown Buffalo. Could you please, do you have time to call him and tell him? Cause the sun was shining brilliantly in Buffalo. <laughs> and what's, what's the distance Buried in Orchard Park and I can't get out of my driveway. What's the distance there between Orchard Park and downtown Buffalo? Uh, I'd say 17, 18 miles. Okay. So maybe it, it's snowing like crazy in Orchard Park and it has been for hours and you're saying 17, 18 miles away, no snow and sunshine. Yeah, and sometimes 
um, there's a band that's ex exceedingly narrow. Um, when our National Weather Service Doppler radar went online in December of 1995, uh, there was a band that was only five miles wide. It, it was a lot longer and, and it was skinny, uh, but you could go just two or three miles and go from blinding snow to the edge of the band and see the sun come out. Don, so how does this relate to daily life in the wintertime in Buffalo? I mean, are there times where people will not commute across town because they know a band is setting up? I mean, how obviously there can be big impacts. Some of these snows, snow rates can be tremendous. How does this play out like in people's decision making with moving around the metro area? Well, I know how it should play out, but it doesn't always work out that way. We uh, had the largest loss of life in the metro, not just Buffalo, but in Western New York's history due to weather in our Christmas blizzard. Uh, the total death toll, uh, the majority of it in the city of Buffalo, but also uh, some outside of the city, the total death toll of 44. And that's just extraordinary. There had been a ground blizzard in 1977 before I got here. Uh, December 76 and January 77 were extreme winters for the portions of the Midwest and the Great Lakes. In fact, there were natural gas shortages. Sure. And snow kept piling up all over froze, Lake Erie froze in an all-time record early date. And the, the, the snow just kept piling up on Lake Erie and the landscape. And all this low-density snow, because the temperature had been frigid most days, it was not water-laden packed snow. It was pretty powdery. Yeah, and a cold front came through on January 28th in the late morning. And the National Weather Service at the time, and again, this is you know with very primitive models, they put out special statements and said things were going to get rough. But that sure. storm for intensity was under forecast, and 29 people were lost. This is the 77 ground blizzard. Yeah, and it's only estimated because it was so incredibly windy for a number of days in a row, about a foot of new snow fell. And pilots were reporting, you know, bright blue skies, and they'd make little notations in the code that they use on that teletype circuit. Pyreps, pilot reports, can see ground blizzard. You know, they could see the ground was obscured, but just a, just a tiny distance above the ground, it was totally clear. And when you say ground blizzard, so there's not really snow falling, it could just be blowing snow that was already on the ground. Yeah, there was there was no open water on Lake Erie. Sure. A lot of winters, Lake Erie right, right now is wide open. The lake temperature as of yesterday at Buffalo is 37, sure. which means if the right setup came along, we'd have the potential to have another major event. Probably, almost certainly not quite the magnitude of the Christmas blizzard, our worst storm in history. Um, but the pattern we're in at the time we're recording this uh, doesn't show any true polar air coming in, uh, at least until or maybe around the 22nd or 23rd of January, uh, which is a good thing. But late, the Great Lakes right now are only at 3 point something percent ice cover, and that includes Lake Superior, which is way below average for this time of the year. 
And so generally open water like that, even though, you know, no one would want to go swimming in 37 degree water, there still is some some heat and some energy available. If you get a cold enough air system to kind of blow over that, right, you could really still get a lake, lake effect snow set up. Yeah. And that worries us a little bit because uh, we can't really predict some of the variables that could set you up for that. Sure. Uh, some of the oscillations in the atmosphere between the ocean and the North Atlantic Oscillation and the Arctic Oscillation, we can't really predict those more than two weeks in advance whether they're going to be in their cold phase, which would favor a polar outbreak in the Great Lakes in the Northeast or in their warm phase. And there are some signs now that they're going back to a cold phase sure. later in the month. Um, and because Lake Lake Erie, when it does freeze, usually has some fissures in the ice, some openings, which can still allow some limited lake effect snow, even though people think the lake is frozen. It's not truly frozen. In, in 1977, it was truly frozen because it was just so extraordinarily cold. You know, there was, they were closing factories uh, to preserve natural gas for homes and schools. Um, and we haven't had a winter like that since. Uh, it was another era. Uh, but right right now, we, you asked that question earlier, how do Buffalonians respond to this kind of hor horrific storm? Well, the majority of people say, well, I'm not going out there. But unfortunately and tragically, uh, enough people did go out. Sometime, some of the fatalities, a few of them were cars driving in from Southern Erie County to, okay. to come and look at it. And where they lived, there was some snow, but it certainly wasn't a whiteout. And they drove in and got disoriented. And the snow was so ferocious, there couldn't be any plowing during the teeth of the blizzard. Police cars could hardly find people. You know, our first responders were putting their lives on the line because we knew there were abandoned cars and some of those cars had people in them. And there were pedestrians or people who lost power because we had peak wind gusts, frequent gusts to over 60 miles an hour and a few gusts to over 70. And people in a frozen house, well, not literally frozen, but no electricity in the houses sure. dropping into the upper 30s would go out. A few of them were looking for the city's warming centers. There were four warming warning centers, but two of those lost power. And a few of these people froze to death or, or died from hypothermia, falling into the snow and their bodies were found lying, lying in the snow. When people get buried in their car in snow, is the primary health danger hypothermia? Could they run out of oxygen? Could there be carbon monoxide if they're trying to run their car in their heater and maybe, you know, snow gets in the tailpipe? I mean, what are the health dangers there? It's a combination of hypothermia and or carbon monoxide in most cases. If the tailpipe is, is blocked by a snow drift, uh, that carbon monoxide level can slowly build the to fatal risk inside the car. Uh, you know, I worked in Wichita, Kansas in the mid seventies, and we used to get all the forecast statements on our NOAA weather wire from the Cheyenne, Wyoming office. And back then the National Weather Service had a second tier blizzard warning called severe blizzard warning. And for that, the winds had to be over 45 miles an hour, not 35. 
and they still had a temperature criteria. It had to be for a severe blizzard under 10 degrees. And I remember there were two, two or three severe blizzard warnings while nothing was going on in Wichita from the Cheyenne office. And they had formatted into the warning statement to become, and I'm not paraphrasing, I'm pretty sure it actually, in fact, I know it's, it said to become lost in a storm of this magnitude is to invite certain death. Wow. That's very strong wording. Meteorologists I work with had been out in the plains for some years. I was only there. I was new. And I, I said, wow, Jim, look at this. He goes, have you ever been on the high plains? Because Wichita's on the plains, but it's not the high plains. Sure, sure. And he said, there, there are no landmarks. If you, if you stay in your car, you think a highway patrol car is going to come by in a total whiteout? What are your chances of being found? And if you decide, I'm getting out of this car and look for a house, you're going to die pretty quickly in that incredible wind chill. And uh, this storm, had there still been severe blizzard warnings, would have qualified. Not for the the temperature criteria has been removed from blizzard warnings. It's It's no longer in it. But as far as the winds and visibility go, this would have been a severe blizzard under that old warning that they don't don't use any longer. Don, what are the official criteria for a blizzard? Well, the essential criteria is visibility a quarter mile or less in falling or blowing snow. And, you know, those ground blizzards, we had that 77 ground blizzard. They're not that common around here. They're much more common in the plains, especially the high plains. And also uh, winds... uh, averaging over 35 miles per hour for three consecutive hours or frequently gusting to over 35 for three hours or longer. There's no temperature criteria and accumulations don't mean anything because when you have winds of that magnitude, only two or three inches of low density snow will produce visibility under a quarter mile and often near, near zero or at zero. So technically, it's a it's a wind speed and a visibility thing. It, it doesn't matter how much snow you get. It doesn't really anymore matter what, what the temperature is. It, it's the visibility and the wind speed. Yes, and people have a tendency uh, to call every bad snowstorm a blizzard. And uh, I'm not the only one. I try to be a stickler on that because it's really a severe weather term. And uh, I don't, and my friends at the National Weather Service don't want to see it watered down. Yeah, if we start using that for every uh, 12-inch snowfall, then all of a sudden... Away with a high wind warning. Yeah, yeah. People call a very windy day high winds in the newspaper, for which I write. Uh, But I have written articles saying there's a reason we have this stickler definition of, you know, you need peak gusts over 58 or sustained winds over 40 for an hour or longer. Don, I think that's so important. I, I live in Galveston, Texas. The deadliest natural disaster happened right in my neighborhood, right? But uh, about two years ago, we had a Category 1 hurricane hit down the coast. Here on the island, our sustained winds were in the mid-40s with gusts to the mid-50s. The next day, everyone was saying, oh, we survived a hurricane. And I'm was, I, and I'm, I'm not a real critical person, but I, I, I took exception to that and said, please do not tell people this was a hurricane. We have a lot of new people here that are going to say, oh, uh, hurricanes aren't that bad, right? And then someday there actually will be hurricane force winds and it'll blow their mind because it's it's way beyond what we saw. That's what I see happening up. If, if we start watering this down and calling, you know, heavy snow blizzards, then people say, oh, I, when a blizzard warning actually comes, people say, oh, I've been through that before. And, and they really haven't. 
Yeah, and there's some controversy, there's quite a bit of controversy here over whether uh, our local political leadership uh, believed the words they were saying. Um, they believed the Na National Weather Service. And the day prior to the blizzard, we had rain on a Thursday night and temperatures were close to 40 degrees. But the county executive and Governor Hochul was here and the mayor of Buffalo were all urging people to get their business done now because you don't want to be out there tomorrow. Sure. But when the blizzard warning, the blizzard warning was issued a day in advance, which is also unusual. Typically, a blizzard warning doesn't get issued until it's already happening or it's imminent in the okay. next hour. So this was a, a pretty good lead time for blizzard conditions. Yes, but um, I think a lot of people who have a tendency to remember blown forecasts or over-forecasted storms or what they think were over-forecasted storms say, eh, the roads are wet. I got last-minute Christmas shopping. I have to get done. You know, I haven't bought anything for my husband yet and went out there. Uh, even though this had been every television station's lead story, the Buffalo News sure, had many sure. articles. I was on social media like crazy, and not, not just me. Um, I think there was a certain element of skepticism on the part of some of the public. And... Um, there's now I, I saw an article by a state university at Buffalo professor who's an, an operations management specialist. She's head of her whole academic society. And she proposed an idea that I thought was a ver very good idea. In the rare event that National Weather Service headquarters is calling a storm that's coming extreme in winter storm impact, that's the time for something akin to what happens in the military when the Pentagon tells the 82nd Airborne that this brigade is now on raised alert. There's no general at Fort Bragg who says, oh, I'm not going along with that. Sure, what, it's official. What this professor proposed is an automatic triggering of a driving ban several hours in advance of the snow, where in that event, in my opinion, the Buffalo police could have been out there ticketing drivers when it was still raining because the ban was in effect. Sure. And the ban is enforceable by law. Uh, they do ticket people in less extreme events if they can get to those people. Uh, where a certain amount of the power to do or not do is removed, uh, the flexibility needs to be reduced. If it's a super high confidence situation as this one was, and it even if climate change is playing a role in this, it's not going to happen that often. There, this professor proposed an automatic triggering of that extreme event in which you issue a driving ban before the snow flies. Because I'll tell you something, when that cold front passed through Buffalo at about 7.30 on the morning of December 23rd, uh, sometimes it takes several hours for the lake effect to get organized, for the cold yeah. air to deepen. Well, the lake effect kicked in almost immediately. And within wow. a couple of hours, with only small accumulations, we were already getting whiteouts and people were getting lost in the storm. And then it became literally a life-threatening storm, not just sure. for pedestrians and drivers, but for the Buffalo police and the plow drivers. After You know, they, they did as much plowing as they could until it became impossible because the plow drivers 
couldn't see a thing. You can't plow in it. In in the worst of the worst of this, what were we looking at? I mean, what were the snowfall rates? What was the visibility? I mean, what what was the worst of it? What were the wind speeds? Well, uh, we had a peak gust just south of Buffalo in a suburb called Lackawanna that borders on Buffalo. There's a New York State uh, instrument that, in the mesonet that had a peak gust of 79 miles per hour. The Buffalo National Weather Service at the airport had a peak gust, I believe, to 73. Wow. And we were getting frequent gusts to over 60, where the sustained average wind speeds were 35 to 45, and then for a couple of hours, 40 to 50. But the airport had 13 consecutive hours of, uh, I think it was under an eighth mile visibility, but quite a few hours within those 13 hours of zero which wow. you, never, you almost never see. So complete whiteout and unbelievable winds for yeah, a long Yeah, it's the longest airport outage Buffalo's ever had. The airport closed from Friday and didn't reopen until Wednesday the next week. I've never seen that before. And I've how, been here, as I said, 38 years. How much snow did they pick up at the airport? And then what was the maximum amount? They had the highest total. And oh. that's not that typical either. Uh, they got 51.6 inches, I think. Wow. Over and, four feet. Uh, but again, the other thing that happened with this storm is very often you hear, well, the temperature dropped from around 40 degrees at 6 a.m. into the single digits by evening. And if you have lighter wind speeds, the density of, of snow as you drop through the teens becomes lower density, blows around easily, but it should be easier to shovel. Sure. But I, I was reminded by one of the the lead forecasters before the storm began, that there have been a couple of papers written, one in Japan in a, a journal, that when you have truly high winds, the dendrites, those nice pretty snowflakes, billions of them are smashing into one another on a turbulent trip and fracture and become almost columnar. They, they become small crystals that pack together where you have so much more snow packed into a drift than you would if the winds were gentle. Oh, I could I could see like gently falling snow. You get these little air gaps right between the flakes. But when when it's that windy, they're packed more. Yeah, when it when it finally let up, I went out and uh, we didn't have a plow service. And I said, well, I'm kind of an older guy. I'm gonna have to be careful, but I'm gonna tackle this. It'll take a few days. And I started to shovel. And it was like shoveling water-laden snow, even though it wasn't. Wow. It was, oh, it was, it was heart attack snow. And we lost, we lost four people to heart attacks from shoveling. In so this almost felt like a heavy, wet snow, even though it was much colder, which, which for our listeners, typically when you get colder conditions, you get less moisture in the snow, right? It tends to be more dry and powdery. Yeah, and the, the water equivalent at the airport, I, I talked to, uh, to uh, the science and operations officer there, and uh, they were saying that the, the ratio was uh, about 13 to 1 for snow to liquid, where sometimes in really cold temperatures you get a ratio of 20, 25 to sure. 1, uh, which often happens in the Rockies ski resorts. And they had a water total water equivalent, I think, of 3.4 inches at the airport observatory which is wow. a lot of liquid. 
Yeah, that's th- th- that's really amazing. I would not have pictured that, but that makes sense when you have these elevated wind speeds that you could pack it in more and and like you said, it's it's becoming a heavier snow. Uh, Don, so do you think there'll be a change to the local regional response? You know, with with future big snow events following the Christmas blizzard. I do. I do think that. I don't know exactly what they're going to decide, but but the criticism was widespread enough. You know, the governor was here. She held quite a few news briefings. The county executive was very aggressive verbally warning people to stay off the roads. But the decision not to deploy many National Guard troops far in in, in advance of the snow instead of, I think there was a small number of National Guard troops who were at least at their ready stations before the snow sure. came. But the decision to wait to put the driving ban into effect until the blizzard warning went into effect, which was 7 a.m. that Friday morning, the 23rd, my, I'm only guessing here. I think because of the amount of criticism that's been leveled, uh, that they would probably do something more along the lines of what that University of Buffalo professor is advocating get that driving ban out there earlier. You wouldn't do this for every snowstorm, but you would do it for this kind of truly extreme event. Because if you know what happens if you overworn, then sure. the boy who cried wolf syndrome comes oh, yeah. and there's, there's even less recognition of the severity of a warning. Sure, that's the challenge with disaster forecasting, right? If you go too far one way, if you overworn, then people don't believe you next time. But if you underworn, you could have fatalities with the current system. Yeah, and I, and I see a re- reaction on my Facebook page because I was, I've been in TV. I still substitute pretty frequently. Uh, there's a fear factor out there now. Uh, instead of the, I'll believe it when I see it. Sure. Um, and although there's no sign right now of another major lake effect event in the next two weeks, which I guess could change toward the end of those two weeks, but there's no sign right now. I'm getting a lot of fearful questions because people are aware, my colleagues on television are reminding sure. people the lake is wide open. And uh, I, I've written two or three columns showing something of a pattern flip coming around the 23rd, maybe 24th of January. Yeah. And I said, this doesn't mean if we turn colder that we're heading back into an extreme pattern or that there's going to be favorable wind conditions to make lake effect. But there's a certain fear factor in a lot of my followers now. Yeah. And then there's a certain amount of denialism about how snowy Buffalo is because in most winters we had been getting smaller snowfalls that added up. Sure. Um, But of cities with more than a quarter million population, Buffalo is the snowiest larger city in the in the United States. And the average year, Syracuse gets more, but Syracuse's population is, isn't as large. And uh, we even have a something I'm not connected with, the Golden Snowball Trophy between Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and Binghamton. And yep. Binghamton always is at a disadvantage unless they get tremendous synoptic snows from a low-pressure system because right. they're not near the lakes. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, Bing, I used to work at the Binghamton Airport, actually, uh, loading baggage on planes when it, and and you'd pick up an inch or two, you know, from a lake effect event, and then up in Syracuse, are getting, you know, a foot or two. So yeah, I have a friend who's a meteorologist at a Binghamton TV station, and great sense of humor, and he's always jealous, jealous. Oh yeah, yeah, we'd always be jealous of the big snows are getting north and west of us. It is most meteorologists, not all love winter and love snow oh yeah even though we get inconvenience the excitement but it gets old by the latter part of the winter yeah you're hey don so how much snow do you have at the airport right now uh how does this rank i mean could this be the snowiest winter on record in buffalo well we broke a record up to the date the blizzard occurred by a wide margin there had never been over 100 inches having fallen by christmas so that record is broken. But since then, we've had a trace of snow in January sure, sure. at the airport. There's no, hasn't been snow on the ground for days. And it looks like we may get two or three inches Friday, which will be our first actual January snow. Yeah. The, the greatest snowfall ever was in the winter of 76, 77, the year that blizzard occurred, just under 200 inches, 199 point something inches. I have my... It's not impossible because the lake's wide open, uh, but I have my doubts we're going to get up to that level. What are you at right now, if you had a guess, at the airport? Well, the total is where it was after the blizzard, 101.6. Okay. So you got up to like, you got up to basically 101.6 by Christmas, and then it sounds like really nothing in, in the two to three weeks after that. Yeah. And, you know, because the lake's wide open, if someone points a gun at my head and says, give me a number, I say, I can't give you a number, but we're not done with lake effect. Yeah, they have a really broad reach. <laughs> Don, before we wrap up here, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, I know people talk about the polar vortex and how changes in that can send Arctic air down to the lower 48, which obviously you're crossing over the Great Lakes. So you could get some big snow where you're at. What, what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that you've looked into? Yes, but, you know, I used the cliche when I was on the PBS NewsHour of I stand on the shoulders of the researchers. I explained I'm not a researcher. And I mentioned uh, Dr. Judah Cohen, who lives outside of Boston. Sure. Uh, he's done, I mean, he's not unique, but he's done a lot of research on another phenomenon called sudden stratospheric warming, which is really esoteric, and we're not going to get into that here, but that's something which can help to disrupt the polar vortex. And in his earlier research, he'd been writing more about a big piece of the polar vortex dropping south as, as, a, as a unit, as, as an entity. But now he's been showing more episodes where the polar vortex, uh, and he does relate, uh, he does have a relationship between the rapidly warming Arctic. Sure. And, uh, for, the, for your audience, a strong polar vortex sounds like, ooh, that must be the really cold one. Well, that's really when the polar vortex is spinning more rapidly. It's at the stratospheric level, and it's closer to the North Pole. And it tends to keep the polar air masses bottled up over the polar region. Uh, but it can be disrupted and weaken and droop. And the polar, out ahead of it, the polar jet stream 
occasionally slows down, weakens, and drops. And that's looking like what's going to happen late later in January. So, Don, a stronger polar vortex, it's tighter. It's keeping the cold air bottled up closer to the Arctic and the poles. But a weaker polar vortex, you're getting some of these uh, the kind of droopiness in the circulation and can get some of that cold air farther south. Yeah, and for some of your geekier listeners uh, and viewers, uh, NOAA has some great articles written for lay people. They don't talk down to you, but they, it's not filled with equations on the polar vortex. And they have some excellent diagrams, which are so straightforward, where they show strong versus weak polar vortex, what sure. the impacts are. And the, you can find these with any search engine. Just type in NOAA polar vortex. And uh, they're great articles because the, the clarity, the, they're well-written. And uh, it's widely in fact, it's essentially known the disastrous hard freeze of Texas in February 2021 was due to a polar vortex disruption. Sure. And that one, our uh, December blizzard was a short, short-lived event. It was only a few days. And then we went back to above average temperatures. Yeah. And I had been writing that you can, we've been seeing somewhat more frequent disruptions of the polar vortex bringing in short-lived episodes, it's episodic, <clears throat> excuse me, of extreme winter weather in an otherwise milder than average winter. And right now that's where we are yeah. and the Great Lakes are. That's why there's almost no ice on any of the Great Lakes. Sure. Um, and Dr. Judah Cohen has written about this extensively. He's, he's also got a video he made that he had on Twitter uh, which I use in a Buffalo News article because he explained it beautifully and had some good graphics to support what the polar vortex looks like when it starts to wobble. Yeah, Don, and, appreciate that. I know a lot of our listeners wonder what happened, but then they're also under, wondering why these things happen. And so uh, you've given our listeners some good resources to run with. I know Noah has some great science, some great resources out there, and I'm sure listeners will will go and check out some of those graphics and some of that teaching, you know, it, it's good stuff when it's not filled with jargon and equations, but can help. I think yeah, and before we go, I want to, I want to give your listeners a great website address. Uh, if you want to learn more about climate change and you, you don't think you know, you're that well informed, it's climate.nasa.gov. Thank it's you. Simple. So that's climate.nasa.gov. If you can't remember that, just do a search NASA climate. It's a great website. It's, updated frequently and it's got one chapter called evidence how do we know humans are causing most of the warming which is occurring and it's written beautifully and uh, it's all peer-reviewed it's not just one guy like me sitting sure. at a keyboard don i really appreciate you taking time to come in the podcast hoping for a successful season up there i know if you get any more snow you're going to be on top of it and hopefully keeping people informed. But um, I, 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 grew, I spent much of my life in the Northeastern states, love wintertime, and especially November, December, January, I'd be excited. But by the time you get to late winter, I think all of us say, okay. Maybe well, it's right now, it's been cloudy here since Christmas, and some people yeah. are fed up with that. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, I hope a great rest of the winter to you. Hopefully uh, stay safe up there, and, and we'll be following your work. And just appreciate all the insights and perspectives you shared with us on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Hal. I really enjoyed chatting with you and, and your listeners. Are you still listening, listeners? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're still here. This was engaging. It was exciting. And there was a lot of great content. Don, best wishes to you and we'll be in touch. Okay. Great, Hal. 
While we covered a lot of amazing content on this interview with Don Paul, I wanted to clarify a few of the points we discussed on this podcast. Number one, Don explained the science behind lake effect snow. Early in the broadcast, we talked about convective cells. So convection is a form of heat transfer that involves heat and energy moving vertically very often. It drives massive thunderstorms that we see when, when we see like cumulonimbus clouds, these big billowing thunderstorms on the plains in spring and summer, for example. That's convection behind that whole process process. So if you can recall ever seeing big thunderstorm clouds with dark bases, but bright white billowing tops that are shaped like cauliflower, those are convectively driven clouds. These big thunderstorms can reach 40, 50,000 feet in height or even higher. Intense lake effect snow squalls can also be convective. You could think of them like mini thunderstorms, but their cloud tops are a lot lower than those, say, spring and, and summer thunderstorms. But they are really basically like mini thunderstorms really moving off the lake. You could think of them. They can produce thunder, lightning, and intense precipitation. Number two, Don shared some amazing stories about how localized lake effect snow can be. Looking over this season's snowfall totals, I found an amazing stat I wanted to share with you. As Don shared, Buffalo has smashed their all-time snowiest season through Christmas Day with 101.6 inches reported at the airport. So imagine if you called your friend that lives in Rochester, New York, a city about 75 miles to the east of Buffalo, and you said, wow, I heard you're having an exceptionally snowy winter. She might sound really confused because through December 31st, Rochester has only recorded 9.3 inches of snow and could actually make a run at the least snowy season on record. That occurred in Rochester in 1952 to 1953, when only 41.7 inches of snow fell the entire season. So Rochester actually could make a run at the least snowy season on record. And here Buffalo has been in international news for having two major blizzards, including the deadliest blizzard on record. So it's amazing how localized this lake effect snow can be. Number three, Don mentioned the Golden Snow Globe Contest, which is now expanded to a nationwide competition to see which metro area with at least 100,000 people records the most snow. As of January 10th, Buffalo is in first place by a long shot with their 101.6, providing a substantial margin over the number two city, Grand Rapids, Michigan, which right now has uh, 68.2 inches of snow. So Buffalo still has a wide margin. Buffalo won it last season as well. And the most victories of any city in the U.S. actually goes to Syracuse, New York. Number four, if you're interested in keeping an eye on these Arctic outbreaks and following really the meteorology and what's coming down the pike, you can follow Don Paul on social media. He provides excellent content. His Twitter handle is at Don Paul Bits O Sun. That's D O N P A U L B as in Bravo I T S as in Sierra O S as in Sierra U N. And that's his Twitter handle on Facebook. He's facebook.com slash D O N dot P A U L dot nine zero. Finally, Don mentioned some of the climatological influences on extreme Arctic outbreaks. In that conversation, he referred to the polar vortex and stated that a strong polar vortex keeps Arctic air bottled up in the Arctic, but a weaker polar vortex can lead to weakening of the circulation in the far north, 
with areas of extreme cold pushing farther south. He referred to the Texas freeze of 2021 as a polar vortex event and shared that this winter has been characterized as warmer than normal in the Northeast and Great Lakes with a few episodes of these Arctic air blasts. He also referred to MIT researcher Judah Cohen, who does extensive research on mid to long term climate pattern prediction. Dr. Cohen will be our guest on next week's podcast. So don't miss out that interview as we continue to look in depth at at Arctic weather outbreaks in the U.S. Don, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. We learned an awful lot from you, both on meteorology, but just hearing these amazing stories of what it's been like for you to forecast lake effect snow in western New York for many decades. We at GeoTrek wish you and your community a quick recovery from the Christmas week blizzard, and we're excited to follow your forecast on social media. I'd also like to thank our amazing marketing team here at GeoTrek for their excellent work in distributing our content. Our team is Seneth Baker, Ashley Anderson, Jeremiah Long, Christopher Cook, Courtney Booker, and Amy Wilkins. I'm Dr. Hal. Thanks for listening. And, and next week, we'll kind of do a part two here on these Arctic air outbla- uh, outbreaks and uh, look at what's maybe coming for the rest of the winter. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.